This episode of the Major Spoilers podcast goes out to Jacob Franklin, Joseph Elmore, Daniel Moreau, and Chris Collins. You can join these super fans in a growing community of patrons over at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Your small monthly contribution gets you access to shows early, original art, behind the scenes, look at what goes on at major spoilers, and so much, much more. It's all over at patreon.com slash major spoilers. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Ashley. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, we scan the depth and breadth of comics new and old to find the greatest things to talk to you about, and also Venom. In 1972, a crack commando team was sent to prison, and now they're the poll of the week. And what DC favorites got the literal axe? We have all that and more. Plus, there's a secret if you wait till the very, very end. So throw out your hands, stick out your tush, hands on your hips, give them a push. Don't be surprised, because the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Ladies and gentlemen, um, yeah, seven hundred and ninety-nine episodes of the Major and it Spoilers took me podcast. This long to get to the French mistake. <laughs> uh, Venom in theaters uh, this weekend, so we'll be talking about some Venom action a little bit later in the show. Anyone I, peeped out those early reviews? Not uh, great. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as that goes, I mean, we talk about it later, but I have seen very mixed mm-hmm. reviews where some people are like, oh yeah, this is actually not as bad as everyone's thought it would be. And other people are like, <laughs> this is like a big turd flapping in the wind. I've seen a lot not of um, good for what they were given, which is uh, not always the most positive thing to say. By the time you mm-hmm. are listening to this, uh, listeners, the embargo will be lifted on uh, written reviews. The social mm-hmm. media reviews were allowed to go live today. Uh, written reviews will show up uh, probably on Wednesday or Thursday this week, I think is when the embargo lifts. So that's when we'll fi- really find out if uh, Venom is going to make $25 million this weekend or $155 million this weekend. $27 million. Maybe it'll do $27 million, but until then, let's get to some news. R.L. Stein goes just beyond at Boom Studios. There's more <gasps> Legend of Korra on the way at Dark Horse Comics, and Kathleen Kennedy has been rehired for three more years at Lucasfilm. Let's spin that Wheel of Destiny. Let's see where we land. I'm actually kind of excited about more Korra. But let's uh, talk about Kathleen Kennedy over at uh, at Star Wars. So uh, Lucasfilm has uh, hired Kathleen Kennedy, who is the uh, head of all things at Lucasfilm. Uh, she's signed a contract to extend her current contract three more years, which means that uh, she will oversee. She's still overseeing this final uh, Star Wars trilogy film. And according to Disney, this will be the last of the uh, chapter films that they that they will be doing. So we won't have to worry about 10, 11 and 12 coming down the pipe. Uh, she'll she's also uh, in charge of overseeing everything. Uh, Lucasfilm related, including uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. We've got that movie, uh, Indiana Jones stuff coming back up. And also, apparently starting production this week, the new Star Wars television show with uh, Jean Favreau. So uh, what are some reactions to Kennedy being rehired? I kind of uh, uh, indicated this Friday or this last Friday on Finally Friday that uh, Disney did it on Friday just to see people's heads spin over the weekend, who uh, are total anti-Kennedy uh, 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 <laughs> CEOs. Well, I'm fine with that. I feel like in a lot of ways, there's I haven't necessarily seen any giant problems with it. And I feel like in a lot of ways, re-upping with someone and making a big deal about re-upping with someone whom people have 
shall we say, designed, decided as emblematic of the problems with the old situation. I think that's a big vote of confidence for her. I think that's, you know, Lucasfilm and Disney and whoever all saying, hey, we really believe in what you're doing, even if people are mad about it. And for me, that's that's kind of be pretty, that's pretty big. I also think when you look at it um, objectively as an adult and more specifically as a business minded person, because ultimately uh, entertainment is a business endeavor. It's rarely about Mm -hmm. making the best thing, no matter what anyone says in a press release. It's always about making the most money. Um, When you look at it through those parameters, which is how these hiring decisions are made. She's wonderful. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, if you, you know at, what I mean? <laughs> if you look at the things, if you look at her credits, her producing credits, E.T. the mm-hmm. Extraterrestrial, Poltergeist, Gremlins, Goonies, Back to the Future, The Color Purple, uh, uh, Joe versus the Volcano. OK, they can't all be winners. Uh, uh, arachnophobia. Uh, what else do we have here? Alive, uh, The Lost World, Jurassic Park movies, uh, A.I., I mean, Indiana Jones. I mean, she just has. W- WB should be so lucky to get someone with her credits. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this you is know. just a, a you know, if you're talking about somebody who has probably the most success with movies, she mm-hmm. would be right up there because you just look at her list of credits as a producer and it's just win, 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 win all the way down the board. And well, I do. I'm often the person who has the most um, negative things to say about the current iteration of Star Wars and everything that's going on. But I really do admire that Lucasfilm is sticking behind the people that they believe in, whether they be actors, characters, producers, because honestly, it's enough of a juggernaut that they don't have to listen to whiny people on the Internet. Uh, so I think that's great. Yeah, so even when whiny you... people on the Internet. I know we are, but we're on the right side of history this time. Okay. <laughs> Juan hopes. Even when you look at... Um the things that haven't been as successful, they weren't completely unsuccessful. Oh, no. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Solo happened under her... Correct. uh, ...guidance, but uh, it wasn't a flop. It just didn't make as much money as they thought. It recouped its money, you know? So it's like even the things that are... that didn't work out, that didn't do quite as well... um, are still at least net positives for the studio. If you look at the amount of money that she has made for Lucasfilm in the entire time that she has been there as one of their producers, it's more money than what Disney paid for Lucasfilm. Right. And she has, since since Lucasfilm has owned, (laughs) since Lucasfilm has been under the Disney banner, she has earned more money for Disney than what they paid for Lucasfilm. So right. I, I I guess I'm I really am kind of confused why people and I know why, but uh, I'm still surprised that people would say, oh, yeah, get rid of Kathleen Kennedy. She's the problem. Uh, no, she's the reason for the success. She's the one that was reigning in George Lucas when he was doing some of the crazy far out ideas that he wanted to do. And she's like, no, no, no. Pull this back. Tone it down. It'll be much more successful. And I think the reason why this is another story that just broke this week. A reason why there may be so much outcry online to get rid of uh, Kathleen Kennedy and, and Ryan Johnson and Rose Tico and and everyone else that's involved in this current wave of uh, Star Wars films is because there's been a new study that's been published that says most of the political agenda stuff that has come mm-hmm. out about Star Wars The Last Jedi is all Russian trolls and Twitter yeah, bots. Said like more than 50% of it. Yes. 
was just the, and I'm wondering if it's the same trolls that have been doing the other trolly trolly well, it, stuff. It, it fits the MO, right? The idea is you basically uh, isolate particular sections of the population that are already uh, mildly upset about something and you mm -hmm. give them a platform and then you just force feed them the stuff until they start frothing at the mouth. And it, it really, uh, it's kind of surprising that only now we're like, oh yeah, because it just, I, I think we just think like, certainly they wouldn't bother with entertainment. Oh, right? but when you're it's dealing like, with billions of dollars. Well, you're dealing with billions of dollars and you're dealing actually with a perfect cross-section of an audience. They're mm -hmm. basically, uh, it, it allows you to prime people to then, so they, then they can go out and do what you want them to do, especially basically by getting them mad about stuff. Yeah, like especially well, when you're dealing with the echo chamber of the Internet. So Morton Bay, yeah. who is the research fellow at USC, he's the one that did, did the study, uh, analyzed 960 plus accounts. This is from The Guardian, uh, which had tweets aimed directly at The Last Jedi director Ryan Johnson for the seven months after the film opened. Uh, he found that 21.9 of the users, less than a quarter, expressed a negative opinion of the film. And then after you stripped out the bots and trolls and the users who had, had been describing it as a clear political agenda on Johnson's part, that figure dropped to 10%. So the real fan yep. hostility the, for, for the film is much, 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 just minuscule compared to what it was blown up on online to be. I will say, he, though, that that particular cross-section of... Because there are people who are... There are genuine human beings behind that as well, as much as there are bots. Sure, yeah. I'll sure. just remind everyone that those people raised more money to remake The Last Jedi <laughs> than I'll make on my current Kickstarter. And it so was, that, you know, I think, is one of the reasons on its own why it's worth yeah. the time of uh, hackers or people with other purposes to look at the... Sure. So also keep in yeah, mind but, that, the, that the money that was, quote unquote, raised for that remake was imaginary money. Uh, that's yeah. right. if we were to do this, how much would you contribute? But there have been other people <laughs> who have gone out with uh, hate in their hearts and turned themselves into this minority fighting back against these the injustice of the world and have raised <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, mm -hmm. by uh, uh, targeting um, this niche group of people and getting people riled up over this to actually kick over real physical dollars. And as I think Rodrigo and you, Ashley, were both saying to basically put them in a position to do what you are asking them to do. Mm -hmm. Right. But I mean, on some level, and I, 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 I don't want to do this, but I'm going to say it. Okay. So when you really break it down, and you look at the nationalism, you look at the populism, you look at the misogyny, and you look how it all ties together. It all ties together. And the people who are actually fomenting this, be it in a pop culture setting or in a socio-political setting, are doing it to better their own ends. And whatever mm -hmm. those ends may be, it's the same thing. And so having a having a woman like this, this uh, Kathleen Kennedy as a focal point for all of the rage – that nerd rage that may not have anywhere else to go makes perfect sense if you're really trying to stir up that kind of, you know, socioeconomic class warfare, whatever you want to call it, and push them towards, you know, the F word. So you really get to a point where Lucasfilm saying this is this is not only a good decision that we're happy with, this is a decision that we're going to double down on and we are going to rehire her and make sure that she continues to shepherd the Star Wars. And which, by That's the way, means she got a raise. Right. Yeah. For everyone who's yeah. really yeah. mad at it, 
She that probably a, got a larger raise than I made last year. <laughs> oh, she probably sure. got a raise larger than all four of our combined yearly income. And for the last frankly, ten years, yeah. If earlier. you're making, if you if you made four movies and those four, four movies made five billion dollars for you and your corporate overlords, have a raise, Kathleen Kennedy. Absolutely. And, and the crazy thing is, we haven't even seen. Since this Disney deal went through, we still haven't seen any Raiders of the Lost Ark. We still haven't seen any new Willow stuff. We still haven't seen what else has Lucasfilm uh, done? Um, I, they they had uh, American Graffiti. American Graffiti, yeah. So they had I mean, that, they had THX eleven thirty eight. They could do THX eleven thirty nine. Finally, I, right, right. Crossing then, over with that Stephen King time travel thing. But it may not make sense if you haven't seen THX's 1 through 1137, but I'm sure that these creators <laughs> no, but can I'm, make it all work. But for I'm us. saying that it makes sense that they just rehire because everything's going fine. I mean, yeah, yeah. as you said, Solo may not have made as much money as they were hoping to, still made yeah. a boatload of money. And I think yeah, that. Finally. And, and unfortunately, if people are looking at how much money something made as an indicator of success, Welcome that, to Hollywood. That, that, that is true, but it also speaks to a larger, a larger problem. Because even though mm-hmm. you know, Ashley, you guys didn't make four hundred thousand uh, yeah. dollars off of your Kickstarter campaign. There's nine days success. left. Can still get there. You, we yeah, could, yes, you could get over there. Uh, it is uh, 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 sciencecomic.com, and that's where. You, what's that? Sciencecomicbook.com. Sciencecomicbook.com. There you go. You go over there and get them up to four hundred thousand dollars, but still. <laughs> you are a you are a success and you made yeah. more money than than what you set out to do. So from that standpoint, I would I would uh, look to you and, and back you again on any other future Kickstarter, because I know that you're a success from that and that you will deliver. Uh, in fact, yeah. you, you are so successful on Kickstarter that uh, you were on uh, Tom Merritt's uh, show. Uh, wasn't daily, was it Daily Tech News show that you were on, or was it yeah, one of the side shows? It was, was DTNS Labs, which oh, is DTNS their Labs, interview yeah. their interview portion. Yeah, and you guys, cool. uh, you and Tom were talking about uh, the Kickstarter projects and some tips and tricks and all those things. So if you are someone who wants to go about and not uh, stir up the hate group to raise money yeah. for your for your Kickstarter, then go and listen to that interview. It, I first of all, I was really surprised because I saw you said something about their their dogs. And oh yeah, I, w- I got to uh, I got to go to Tom's home and meet his famous dogs, and his, I was very excited. <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, his brand new home. Yes, I think you uh, went to the brand new yeah. home, and yeah, so he I, actually ooh. lives uh, really close to where I used to live. Okay, so like I, a small town. He said he had said something. You said you met the doggos. I was like, okay. And then the next day, I turn on oh, my yeah. my podcast feed, and there you are with Tom talking about uh, Kickstarter success. So. Um, it's okay to back a winner and it's okay. It's okay yeah. to back winners <laughs> yeah. like Lucasfilm and, and Ashley and, and Jason with their stuff. I think it's totally okay. And, uh, sometimes I think in the bottom line of this is when you see a lot of people getting stirred up on something that seems rather odd, it just may be because the Russian bots are doing it all. And I don't know <laughs> if it's Russian bots, but it's definitely trolls well. and bots doing that stuff. So, yep. And Ashley's point remains, you know, the bots are there to stir it up, but we kind of have a responsibility to not make it even worse. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me ask you guys this real quick. Is it mm-hmm. okay to get outside of your echo chamber in these instances? Well, you have to define echo chamber. I mean, when it comes to my Twitter, I have literally zero tolerance for Jack Wagonry. And there are certain people that I follow, and some of them are, are people that I've never met, but they are beloved to me simply because they call out Jack Wagons. Uh, there's a particular comic creator whose work I've only gotten into because I saw him 
on the Twitter fighting with somebody that I disliked. And I'm like, I'm going to follow this guy because he seems like he's got it all together. And every time something sets him off, he'll be angry and people will be like, well, what about X, Y, and Z? And he'll be like, F you, F you, F you, who's next? And I'm like, now I know who to block. So I go and I will just block the snot out of people who come at people that I like or come at me or, you know, do terrible things. So is that an echo chamber or is that me curating my experience to where my blood sugar and blood pressure stay low? Yeah, there's there's this idea of it's like, well, if you block people or whatever, just because you don't want to, like, argue with argue the points, then you're just like segmenting yourself off or whatever Mm -hmm. um and there is something to be said for that view but the important thing is that you never have to put up with anybody who is rude to you because they're easy to block yeah and i'm Um, not talking about people that personally attack you yeah Uh, i'm talking about if you're just closed in saying i am only going to be in the pro lucasfilm pro star wars camp and anyone that doesn't uh says otherwise i'm going to block them so all i ever hear is the positive side about right. star wars lucasfilm uh that can have its its problems as well likewise flip that around to the other side is i'm only going to be following or listening to people that have negative things to say um that also becomes a problem and so i think it is okay to uh, go outside of that that echo chamber of people just uh, uh, saying the exact same things back and forth to one another to at least try to understand what the other side's saying. And I'm not trying to say uh, mm-hmm. to come to an uh, an understanding of, of uh, yeah, I agree with these people or I see where they're coming from. But just to see that side of the argument sometimes mm-hmm. can be very eye-opening. Yeah. Do you guys, uh, do any of you guys watch uh, the pop culture detective or pop culture detective agency. I do not on, on I YouTube. I, I strongly recommend it. Like that's a good example. I really didn't like the last Jedi, but I recently saw a video where he talks about sort of the subversive ideas of, of masculinity that it has and mm-hmm. how that's a very good thing. And partially that's the reason why people are so upset at it. And it was really well put together and it kind of made me like the movie a little bit more. And then I remember about, you know, actual plot stuff that happened. Right, like, right, oh, right. yeah, no, I hated it. Yeah. Right, right, but right, right. <laughs> it's, that, it's, that almost makes it sound uh, interesting because I didn't really love it, it either. Um, you know, people people really uh, another great video that he has. People really bash uh, magnificent uh, beasts and mm-hmm. where to find them. And he's like the protagonist of Magnificent Beasts is a really unusual male character in that he's self-spoken. He's not a like square-jawed action hero. He wants to accomplish X, Y, and Z. And they're not the usual like kick down the door and self save the damsel kind of things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it kind of definitely I hadn't seen the movie yet, but I wasn't interested. And it suddenly made me actually interested in, mm-hmm. in tracking down magnificent or what is it? Is it Fantastic Beasts? Fantastic yeah, Fantastic Beasts Beast and, Beast and, Beast and, and where to find them. them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, for some reason I'm subscribed to Pop Culture Detective. Didn't realize I was. So there you go. I'm gonna have to oh, watch yeah. more of the also, videos. Also, just to, just just to be fair, he just like tears into the Big Bang Theory. So I was like, oh, good. This is something that I <laughs> enjoy watching, and it's not making me think differently about a pop culture property. <laughs> I agree with all of this. Uh, any other thoughts, Matthew? Do you have one more thought? I do. I think there is something to be said for hearing people who disagree with you. I mean, certainly you cannot avoid the idea that 
people have different opinions on things. But when it comes to pop culture stuff, I think the example that keeps coming up for me is, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but sometimes on the internet, I like to talk about superheroes. And I will go and I will actually search the phrase obscure superhero and see if there's anything that someone knows about that I haven't heard about. And I've got people telling me about this obscure superhero named Squirrel Girl mm-hmm. who has her own cartoon and a live action series and dolls and, you know, multiple series over the last five years. And I've realized that there are times when you listen to the the thought processes of people who don't agree with you that they are, in fact, full of crap. Oh, no, I didn't say that you had to listen to them <laughs> and agree with them. Uh, there right, have been some very that. controversial creators that I have followed just because I'm like, OK, let me see what the what the controversy is from both sides. And then after, you know, a couple of weeks, I'm like, OK, this person is just, you know, saying the exact same thing over and over. That's their shtick. Unfollow. Goodbye. Yep. Uh, Ashley, any final thoughts on Kennedy, Lucasfilm, uh, Russian bots or anything else that is on your mind? Mm, Kathleen Kennedy sticking around is a good thing. I block people sight unseen based on keywords, and uh, that's how Twitter works. Yes, I yeah. I understand. Ashley accidentally blocked me once. It was sad. <laughs> I don't think uh, that's true. No, it's true. You you had a block chain oh, no. for Canadian. Yeah, no, there is there there is that issue. I don't use of... I don't use blockchains, but I go to every person's profile who follows me. And if they only tweet about certain things and if they have certain things in their bio, I will not let them keep seeing me. Oof. Yeah. Call. Yeah. Rodrigo, any but I do, else it, that you I do it myself. No, no, no. Yeah. Any other thoughts, Rodrigo? Uh, no, I think we're good here. All right, Let's then. Move on. Let us Let's move, move on, on to some reviews. <laughs> Out last week, and I'm surprised more people aren't talking about this. I think everyone was still caught up with Batman's wiener. Um, Heroes in Crisis number one from Tom King and Clay Mann. Uh, it came out on the 26th, uh, like I said, last week. And I read it and I will say this. It's probably not for everyone, but for this opening first chapter, it is really interesting because you have a mystery of who killed all of these heroes. And yes, there are two, uh, I would say, um, semi-major heroes that do die in this first issue. Uh, there are mid Carters. Yeah, I would say, but one of them has not even been in comics for the last decade and then suddenly shows up and then suddenly they kill him off panel. Uh, I'm kind of upset about that, but I want to see where this goes. Um, the other one has just had a troubling history from, you know, the 1970s on. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but there are two that do survive, uh, booster gold and, uh, Harley Quinn do survive. And while Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman are flying to the scene to try to figure out what has happened to this uh, to this place where uh, called Sanctuary, it's a secret hospital for superheroes to go in and cope with things that are troubling them. Someone has come in and murdered everyone staying there. Um, so there's going to be a lot of heroes that you've never even heard of before uh, that pop up and are dead. Um, what's interesting about this is we kind of have not really a locked room mystery, but if it's a secret hospital that no one knows about, you have to figure out who knew about it and who went crazy. Uh, then you also have this weird bit at the end of the issue where Harley and Booster are both like, no, we didn't kill everyone. You killed everyone. They're basically pointing the blame. So I don't know if we're getting set up for a real, really weird uh, Rashomon kind of uh, storytelling as this uh, story unfolds. Uh, but I found it very fascinating from a story structure uh, standpoint and from the hook part of it. And all this is is don't expect anything. This, this first issue is nothing but set up. 
Um, you're kind of tangentially introduced to some of the characters that have died, but it's more of a, this is the first five minutes of a, of a showing up at a crime scene and what are people doing? And I found that very, very fascinating. The art from Clayman is fantastic. Uh, it is, it is wonderful. It is beautiful. Uh, and I guess the bottom line is, yeah, there are some sensitive topics. I mean, there are people getting killed. There were a lot of people who were upset about uh, identity crisis and uh, the death mm. of the death of uh, the characters there. I don't know if this is going to have the same outcome or not, uh, but I kind of really want to try and see where the story's going and want to see what Tom King has to say about post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, what it uh, what he has to say about uh, heroes who have to deal with uh, extraordinary uh, things and how does that affect them or does it affect them? Um, and, and I want to kind of see where this goes. So I really enjoyed heroes in crisis. Number one, be aware that it may trigger a lot of people for a lot of negative reasons. Um, but for me, I enjoyed it and I'm going to give it four slices of meatloaf out of five. Uh, certainly it is something that I, I think is worth checking out whether you end up liking it or not. Matthew. Uh, you mm-hmm. took a look at last week, also from DC Comics, The Terrifics, number eight. Yes, I like The Terrifics, number eight. It is certainly not a book that filled me with hate on every single page. But The Terrifics, number eight, written by Jeff Lemire and drawn by Dale Eaglesham, or in the new age of DC heroes tradition, storytelling by Lemire and Eaglesham, apparently as a team. Uh, brings us to the Terrifics. If you're familiar with the Terrifics, uh, there's Mr. Terrific, there's Phantom Girl, there's Plastic Man, and there's Metamorpho. However, Phantom Girl is no longer a phantom, and Metamorpho is no longer a Metamorpho. <gasps> what? But they are trapped in a weird kind of alternate dimension place where they have run into Tom Strong, the primary hero of uh, the... America's best comics line that DC put out around 1999 and yet another reason that Alan Moore is never going to go back to DC. Um, but throughout this issue, the thing that I have always loved about the terrifics is on display throughout this issue. And it is the character interplay between these four characters. There is one thing that I cannot stand about this issue that I'll get to in a moment, but most of the issue is Rex and Linya and uh, Michael and Plaz just being cool and doing their thing. And about halfway through the issue, they realize that the strange uh, negative space wedgie that has forced them to stay together as a team is no longer in effect. So they can just leave. They can all go their separate ways. And after this revelation, the four of them are like, well, let's help Tom out. We've got something that we need to do as a unit and none of them are admitting that they kind of like being a team of pals who hang out together and some, you know, possible romance brewing question mark. Uh, but this also has a dog with metamorphos power, metamorpho dog or metamor mutt. I don't know. Metamorpho. Duh. In any case, um, the thing that I hate about this issue is the thing that keeps coming back and bothering me about the entire new age of DC heroes line in that this book is intentionally analogous to the fantastic four sideways is Spider-Man. I'm pretty sure that the silencer is the punisher you go through and a lot of them have intentional specific analogs. And this issue introduces the overarching villain who's fighting the Terrifics, who are four people who are fantastic. And this villain's name is Doc Dredd. 
Dread, of course, is a synonym for doom in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I hate that. I do hate that. But it has a Swamp Thing, and it has Tom Strong and Mr. Terrific teaming up, even though neither of them have any real powers and just kind of science heroing their way through the universe. And it has my 1999 uh, schoolgirl crush, Tesla Strong, showing up and saying, come with me if you want to live. So really, you can almost get past the Doc Dread thing. Then it just sticks in your craw and you're filled with hate. But nonetheless, it's a really, really well-drawn issue. I really like the way it's put together. I feel like almost all of the New Age of DC hero books suffer from almost an aimlessness that comes from that almost what feels like on-the-fly plotting where they are drawing an issue and they're drawing a lot of stuff and then somebody comes back in and puts in the dialogue after the fact. And I feel like the problem with that is not everybody is Jack Kirby, but this is a solid issue. Three out of five slices of meatloaf for the Terrifics, number eight. Eagle Shem is a great artist. I want to see more Dale Eagle Shem on everything. So, you know, if you wanted to give me 55 more issues of this, I think you can. All right. Uh, Coming out this week from Image Comics, Ashley, it is Blackbird number one from Sam Humphreys. I've seen a lot of uh, positive buzz on this. Let us get your reactions. Totally. So I have been excited for this book since it was announced because uh, it is Sam Humphreys with Jen Bartell on art and Paul Reinwald on colors. Uh, they are all people that I either know or follow online and I'm in and am a huge fan of. Also, um, I feel like I went through a phase that began like right around when Saga came out where I was reading a lot of image and then they did all their space books and like most of them weren't good. So then I kind of fell off image. And so I'm excited to be excited about image books again. This tells the story of a woman named Nina who lives in Los Angeles, which is fun for Ashley because she lives in North Hollywood, which is very close to where I am. And they reference a street that I know where that is. I was just (laughs) fun for me and probably for like nobody else, because I think most people reading this are probably outside of Los Angeles. If I was going to hazard a guess, Um, it's the kind of book that, is very much like a Harry Potter or a Dresden Files. It is your um, urban fantasy where somebody had an experience that's a little weird and nobody believes them. And then, of course, by the end of your little origin story, uh, it is confirmed for you that it was a real thing and there is a whole secret society of magicians that you never knew about before. All of that is great. Jen Bartel's art is stunning. It is singular. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, I don't know if I've ever read a full comic by her, so this is really fun. I'm, I'm used to just seeing her pinups, um, or her cover. She's doing, uh, speaking of Fantastic Four, she's doing a bunch of great Sue Storm covers right now. Follow her on Instagram. Um, I like the characters. I like the art. I like the trappings. Um, I would say that this would be a great issue zero for where it ends. I feel like... There's a lot more story that could have been crammed into this that I would. Character set up in our mundane world. And I suspect that the uh, weird magical underbelly is going to be much more exciting in the preview art. You've seen the giant tiger and. That plays that's not only an important character, but an important plot device and a, a moment upon which the story turns and the world cracks open a little bit. 
And I would have liked to have spent more time there and a little less time on why Nina, our protagonist, is so sad. But I'm hoping that now that all that's out of the way, that the series will move forward with great abandon. I think it's a pretty singular series compared to a lot of other things that are on right now. Um, On right now, being printed right now. Uh, There's a lot of very angry lady books, which I understand and I applaud and I'm here for. But something crafted like like Blackbird, it just feels a little more delicate. And finesse isn't the word because I don't mean that these other books aren't crafted with the same level of thought or care put into it. But there's a polish on this book um, that I really, I really, really enjoyed. I think it's a solid first issue. Um, But like I said, uh, I think we could have got a little more bang for our buck because now... Books are three ninety nine, which Ugh. is too expensive for yeah. twenty pages of story, and even the digital copy that we got to review had a bunch of ads in the back. So, if you like either of these creators, I think you'll really enjoy this. Um, if you would like something that's a little more fantastical, um, you would enjoy it. And I'm always an advocate of supporting indie comics because your dollar goes further, even if it's three dollars and ninety nine cents on a dollar. It matters more. <laughs> going here um then going to one of the big two i read heroes in crisis as well so i get it but uh, i enjoyed it i'm definitely in for the long haul uh this will probably turn into another one of the series that if no one else claims it, i'll just review every month there you go so stay tuned all right uh thank you for that ashley and finally rodrigo coming out next week from aspen comics something that uh, they're kind of uh, proud of i think we'll find out what you think of artifact one number one Artifact one, number one. I reviewed Artifact one, number zero, um, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I, I know that everybody's just been like chewing their their fingernails down to the bone, waiting for me to say whether the events of Artifact one, number zero, uh, matter as far as Artifact one, number one, and the answer is. Yeah. Um, but they're not necessary, right? Uh, number zero issues, a lot of the time, you can just skip and they're not a big deal. Uh, so Artifact 1, number one, if you just approach it as its own brand new thing, is a story about a young uh, alien-looking girl living in an alien-looking world uh, <laughs> that is very... Did she take a midnight train going anywhere? Uh, yes, she took a midnight glorp to anywhere. So um, it, uh, she lives in a very repressed society, and it's not very clear as to why um, until you get to the end of this issue, at which point you realize that there is much more going on than you might have originally expected. Um, the art is really good. I really like it. Um, the it's by uh, or uh, Vince Hernandez and JT Crawler writing it, and uh, the artist is uh, Romina Morinelli. I'm not familiar with uh, this artist's work, but it looks really good. Um, it's got a, a very interesting. There's like all of the wild places are like kind of like pink and blue and purple 
you know, it's like there's like, oh, it's an alien forest. So nothing is actually green. You know, it's like everything's like weird colors. Uh, but interestingly, the character is sort of like this, like um, kind of teal colored uh, lady with red hair. So it like fits in really well. It's interesting. I wonder if it's like a deliberate thing where it's like, well, she's like supposed to fit in with what we think of nature in this world. Nature is a weird color and so is her. And so is she, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't want to say too much about it because uh, I don't want to spoil anything. I will say that there is a big reveal at the end of this and I am... So, so glad that it's at the end of issue one and that they didn't try to um, that they didn't try to stretch it out, you know, over the first volume. It just kind of just that little reveal tells us what we need to know, but still leaves everything wide open. Right. It it leaves you asking a lot more questions in a good way. Right. In and in the way that you want from your fiction. Right. It's like. Oh, hey, you know what all of the ruling class is all upset about? It's this thing. And then you look at it and you're like, this just leaves me with more stuff to ask. And that's kind of what you want. You know, it gets you interested. So yeah. I'm I'm really looking forward to that uh, next issue. Um, I, I'll be interested to see where they go with it now that they've set us up like this. I'm going to give it four slices of meatloaf. All right. Um, I think people should, should check it out. Very good. Thank you, Rodrigo. That comes out next week. From Aspen Comics. And listeners, you can head over to Majorspoilers.com and you can check out all of the reviews that we have over there. Some new stuff, uh, some stuff that is out this week, and a whole lot more, including the Major Spoilers Poll of the Week. Poll of the Week, 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 week. I am sure at some point we've asked this question in the past, but um, I'm asking it again. Who's your favorite member of the A-Team? Is it Hannibal Smith? Is it Faceman Peck? Is it B.A. Baracus? Or is it Howlin' Mad Murdoch? Uh, and I thought it'd be kind of lopsided, but it turns out it may not be. Matthew, uh, why don't we start with you? Because you were probably alive when this show uh, first aired and you probably watched it, uh, you know, every, what was it, uh, Tuesday night or something? I think it was on Mondays. Was it on Mondays? Yeah, That's used... what, yeah. Monday, Tuesday. I remember the first day we went back to school after the TV movie, which mm-hmm. served as the pilot. Mm-hmm. And people were all like, oh, that Mr. T was awesome. And he was all Mr. T. And I was like... Guys, his name is B.A. Barakas. But for me, you cannot beat Starbuck. And so I was immediately taken by uh, the smooth-talking face man who's, you know, the kind of the con man of the group, the one who makes everything work, the one who gets them their weapons, the one who keeps them out of jail. And so if you say to me, who's your favorite, I'm going to tell you Starbuck and let you figure out who it is that I'm talking about. There you go. Uh, mine, uh, Howlin' Mad Murdoch. There's something about uh, uh, Matt Frewer, who was always uh, fun to watch week after week do his crazy uh, shtick. That's that's Dwight Schultz. Oh, man. I'm sorry, Dwight that's, Schultz, Matt Frewer. Matt Frewer was, was uh, uh, Max, Max Headroom. Headroom. Yeah, at the time. Uh, they, they're the same guy. They just uh, changed their makeup. Uh, but yeah, Howlin' Mad Murdoch is who I would pick. Uh, Rodrigo, you're familiar with the A-Team, correct? Uh Barely. Barely. Okay. <laughs> this is where yeah. it gets into the weird territory. This is where you can tell which people were born uh, and old enough in the 80s and which ones were born after. What was this? 86, okay. Matthew? Is this when this ended? I want to say closer to 84 when oh, it was okay. going strong. Yeah. I don't know. So I have a I have a theory uh, because my talking to my parents about it, 
they're familiar with the A team. Mm-hmm. So it did make it to Mexico, but I never saw it. So I, I have this theory that they just didn't let me see it because I was too young. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it had um, the, you know, explosions and people getting shot every yeah, episode. Yeah, I mean, it was it was like a violent show. It, sure. You know, probably came to Mexico two to three years afterwards. I was still a little baby. How old um, were you in 83? I was born in 83. So, yeah, you were too young. Yeah. So even even with the receded like uh, timeline that that, you know, uh, imports get, I was still too young for it. Still, though, um, I saw lots of Gilligan's Island and Get Smart and stuff like that, you know, that just got into syndication. So I kind of feel that maybe like Mexicans just didn't like the A-team that much. And they were like, oh, no, we want to see, like, we just want to keep looking at, we just want to keep watching the Partridge family. We don't care about these soldier guys. Yeah, Come 80, on, 80, 83 to 87 is when it ran. It did not have enough episodes probably to go into syndication. Yeah, I mean, I know, that my, episodes. I know that my parents saw it because I know that um, if you're new, if you're new to the show, um. Uh, you probably haven't heard me talk about my mom, but my mom is an extremely harsh critic of adaptations in that there is no adaptation that she like has ever liked. Um, so when I know that when the A-Team was being remade with like Bradley Cooper and mm-hmm. Sharito Copley and Qui-Gon, I want to say, mm-hmm. um, my and mom Rampage was like, Jackson. yeah, my mom was like, oh. That looks terrible. I do not want to see it. I remember the original. <laughs> it was perfect. There's no point. Um, so I know that they're familiar with it, and I just missed it entirely. So just from having watched uh, him tell me to not do drugs in the early 90s, I'm going to go with B.A. Baracus just because I'm passingly familiar with Mr. T. Uh, B.A. Baracus afraid of flying. So in order to right. get to all the places they needed to go to, they roofied him and gave him a drug to knock him out in yeah. milk. So he'd drink the milk, mm-hmm. he'd go knocked out, and then he'd wake up in the place and go, Hannibal, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Them milks are good. Yeah, the milks are good. Punk. Literally that that fast. Ashley. Mm. The A-Team. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about this. I'm except 25. That I don't know. Family Guy did a crappy parody of it. Um. I don't know. Uh, good parody. <laughs> well, I guess that's where my taste on Family Guy lies. Um, I'll say Mr. T because he's the one whose name I know. There you go. <laughs> uh, of these, so like uh, George Papard. I don't. George Papard has passed away. Right. Uh, um, Mr. T still alive. Uh, you will occasionally see him pop up on the uh, the Instagrams and the Twitter. Someone has po- uh, uh, spotted him. Uh, Dwight Schultz, what is he doing? He is doing some stuff now that I'm very impressed with. Uh, dang it. Now I can't even think of what, what it is, uh, but he's he still Senate Barkley for years. Yeah. 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 On, on Star Trek. Um, and then, um, Peck face man. What the, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> I forgot his real name. You can't remember his name. No, I can't. How good of a face man he is. I know. Right. You don't know anything about him. Oh, God, now I can't remember. Dirk Benedict. Yeah, Dirk Benedict. There you go. And he's still around and doing stuff. Um, yeah, but, he's like uh, 75 now, I think. Is he really? Wow, he looks good for 75, because I just saw him him and uh, Apollo uh, at, a, at a thing recently. 
I think Apollo Jamie passed Bamber? away. No, um, the real Apollo. The real. Oh, Apollo. No, he died like two or three years ago, didn't oh, really? he? Really, really. Hmm. Richard. Yeah, Richard. Richard, Richard Hatch. Away, Richard Hatch. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, this would have been two or three years ago <laughs> that I saw him. So, there you go. Um, yeah. So it's uh, yeah. There's a team is is that slice of life that is if you missed it. It's probably okay that you did, but if you were alive during it, that was like the only thing yeah. kids were talking it, about. And I think the adults put up with it because it kept the kept the kids quiet for a few hours. It was like James Cameron's Avatar in that it was huge when it was out, but had little to no pop culture profile afterwards, right, other right. than people referencing it. Well, and, and it was also so weird because it came out in the 80s, the early 80s, and it was about these guys that escaped from Vietnam and we're living in the underground and just blowing stuff up for people that had trouble. They were soldiers of fortune. Um, in 1972, a crack commando yeah. team was sent to prison. For a crime they didn't commit. They promptly escaped and now live in the uh, L.A. underground, which, you know, the L.A. underground, Ashley, includes uh, George Papard's Hannibal Smith working as a uh, stunt uh, stuntman in big Hollywood films. Like the yeah. opening scene is him crawling out of the ocean yeah, or out of the water in, that's a, uh, in totally a monster under the radar thing to do. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it was, uh, it, it's so corny. If you were to watch an episode now, you'd be like, this is the corniest stuff I ever, uh, I've ever seen because you never really see them kill anyone. You see a lot of mortars <laughs> going off and people flying through the air, but you never see, and you see lots of bullets being expended, but you never see anyone going down good guys or bad guys in that show here's the thing though it's remarkably metatextual because the opening credits of every episode feature the actor who played starbuck watching a cylon go by and getting this look on his face yeah because and i'm uh, like that's it's 1983 they didn't necessarily do those giant referency things yet yeah that was that's, from the pilot because he was on the universal pictures lot to go get hannibal who was doing the monster movie and he happened to be next to that universal pictures ride that had a whole mm-hmm. huge battlestar galactica thing in it yep mm, mm. Matthew, Battlestar galactica was around old, before old people yeah. referencing uh, uh a-team stuff television stuff from days gone by how did everyone vote who is their favorite <laughs> Of the A-Team members. You will be shocked and surprised. Not, not really. It is uh, not a runaway, but it is a pretty big margin. 45% of the votes. Howling Mad Murdoch, Dwight Schultz, uh, Lieutenant Broccoli, who was turned inside out by a transporter and then saved uh, the Voyager. 29% B.A. Baracus, based on the strength of Mr. T's jewelry. 17% say the face man, and only 9% Remember that Hannibal Smith existed. I know, right? It's weird. Yeah. Anyway, listeners, head over to Majorspoilers.com. Cast your vote in the Major Spoilers poll of the week. And uh, in the comments section, show your work. Tell us why you like that particular character and uh, maybe what your (laughs) fond memories were of the A-Team when you were growing up, if you're as old as we are. Tell us how old you were when you were born and I, why you are not old enough to remember this show. I asked a really strange question over on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. I was just at, I asked the question, how old were you the first time that your parents left you at home alone by yourself for an extended period of time? Like overnight? I, think, or, I actually think that's a very, I can get very telling answers to that question. Oh, I know. And people were like, oh, it was like seven or eight. And I was like, let me, let me guess, you were born in the 70s. And they're like, yeah. And then as you see people say, oh, it's 9 or 10, 11 or 12, and you can actually see the decade that they were born based on when the first time was that they were allowed to stay home by themselves. It's really weird. I, it was very I have telling. a 14-year-old who has not been allowed to do that yet. 
I know. Oh, well, I mean, uh, legally, you're not supposed to be leaving your kid alone until they're 13. Uh, I mean, I'll say I'll say this. There is about five years difference. My brother is 17 months younger than me. Uh, five years difference between when I was allowed to stay home alone and when he was allowed mm, to stay home alone. Interesting, <laughs> interesting, interesting, interesting. I don't know if I was allowed to stay home so much as my parents had no idea where I was for the entirety of my sophomore year of high school. If that makes any difference. Well, I know that when I was a sophomore in, and I'm not saying I was a sophomore when my parents left me at home by, by myself for the first time, but they went on a weekend trip out of town for their anniversary and left my sister and I at home with frozen pizzas and money. And we, and they were like, here's some, here's some movie rentals. <laughs> you guys stay at home. We'll call you when we get to our destination, make sure you guys are safe and we'll see you in, you know, in 48 hours. And we just, how old are you when you're a sophomore? I don't understand. I Americans would have been, oh, so that would have been like school? 13, 13 or 14. Okay. That would be, that would be the 10th grade Ashley. Or yeah. I believe oh, so it, that's like 15. It's like 10th form yeah, yeah. or whatever it is. I believe talking? actually in Canada, they call it uh, the doodle bop knickers. Yeah, that's it's, what we call it. It's the yeah. baccalaureate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not. I as know opposed, that one. As opposed to the frontal laureate, which is. You know, but I do no. know that I was left at home all day when I was sick. Like if I was sick and couldn't go to school, mom would be like, OK, well, you stay home. I'm going to go to work and I'll call you at lunchtime to see if you're still alive. And I oh, would be at home so at, at the age of eight doing that at the age of eight. And I was just yeah, like, we that's did. weird. My mom was a stay at home mom until I was 12. And then at that point, it was like don't light yourself on fire. See you later. <laughs> like, she's like, I did my time and now I am leaving. Goodbye. And thank you. Well, it, it's funny because the oldest, the boy, he's 11 and he's like, look, dad, you're just going to go get my brother <laughs> down at school. Just leave me at home. I'll be fine. I'm not going to answer the door to strangers. I'm going to sit here and play my video game. Just go. I'll be fine for an hour. He's up to something Nah, he just he just doesn't want to be torn away just, from his video games and his youtube yeah, he doesn't channels want to, that was that was me as a kid like i think my parents ev- like only ever left me home alone because i was like oh, i just want to play with super mario 64 you guys yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys go to the store i'll stay here and play mario i'll put all the groceries away i was 20 20- Eight years old when I bought it at 64. <laughs> Why am I so old? Uh, Why? Because you were. Hey, we need to talk about this phenomenon called Venom. Venom. So we're reading this. Uh, what is it? Is this one of those uh, Marvel? Um, what are those uh, big? Um, not an omnibus, but it's the uh, the the collection of books. Yeah, the Masterworks. Is this a Masterworks collection, Matthew? Spider-Man, no, Birth of is, Venom. This is just a really, really thick, in all senses of the word, especially the Doctor Who British sense, trade paperback collection. And it and it's what's really interesting is I say that this this volume is broken into two parts. The mm-hmm. Secret Wars. Uh, Peter Parker's got the the symbiote suit. And he's going through and having the weird dreams, and then he figures out with Reed Richards' help that the suit is bad, and he banishes the suit into a a container. And then you have the second part of this, which is just an ugly mess of Todd McFarlane art and um, and Eddie Brock being like uh, five times wide as he is as he is tall. This is the thing. If I may, can I? Can I? Uh, introduce a, a, a notion that there's actually three parts. Okay, and, go ahead. And I want to hear the, the third first part. part. Okay, so the first part is 
that post Secret War Spider Man stuff where he just has a black costume mm-hmm. and there is no indication that anything is wrong with that costume. Right. right. Until it starts creeping then, on him in the middle of the night. Right. Then there's the second part, which is the sudden realization oh, no, this thing's alive. Here come the Fantastic Four. It's over. And then we get into basically the actual birth of Venom. That's the third part. Yeah. You are nearly 200 pages into this book before the costume actually seems to really have a mind of its own, much less be a Venom. So I, I, I would present to you that this is not so much the birth of Venom as it is the long and tortuous uh, nurturing, the, the neonatality of the Venom. The long slide. The long slide, I don't know, that too. sounds an awful lot like birth to me. This is like the nine months of of gestation of yeah, Venom. it's like it's Actually like when closer to ten months, it's forty weeks. It's <laughs> like when when somebody's like we're gonna when somebody's like we're gonna do a biopic about Martin Luther King. It's mm. like going through Martin Luther King being a toddler in real time. Right. It's just like I'm sure it's interesting and things are happening, but this isn't really a movie about Martin Luther King. Yeah, I think the the real telling part of this for me is i read these amazing spider-man was the one title that i was reading when these books had come out or at the beginning of this run anyway i read these off the stands and literally the first half of this book the roger i think it's uh, stern and uh, ron friends run yeah they're friends the yeah. thing that i remember is the bombastic bagman where johnny storm makes peter parker go out with a plate with a paper bag over his head i just I have a question and kick me sign I have a question, Rodrigo. You have completed the uh, the Spider-Man game 100%. Is Peter Parker Bagman one of the costumes that you can get? <laughs> it, because it if is, it is, I will finish this game tomorrow. It is not, but the DLC is about to come out or just came out. Mm-hmm. And there are new suits in there. Mm. So I've uh, the base game does not have it. Um, but it, it does have some relatively obscure suits, so I would not be surprised if it eventually gets it. Okay. And the the good news there is that if it does, chances are because it'll be part of a DLC and you paid for it, you will get it right away. Yeah. If you bought the uh, deluxe edition or whatever. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Right. Uh, so let me ha- let me ask you guys a question. Uh, was there okay. were there any surprises in and let's just talk about the Venom symbiote uh, uh, story here. And forget about the other stuff for a moment. Was there anything in this that was a surprise to you? Or can you see where they pulled that, uh, was it Spider-Man 3? Where they pulled Spider-Man 3's all the story point plot points from? Mm. I was surprised there, at how slow it was. Well, and part of that is, you know, 80s Marvel being incredibly episodic. And really, we talk about modern decompression. Yeah. But. Yeah. episodic Marvel of the eighties can be just as decompressed as anything from Bendis because we've got like a full nine issues of Spider-Man running around in this suit and little questions of is something wrong is something maybe, Oh, I feel really tired. Oh, wait, what the, who, what the, Havana, Havana. And then finally Reed Richards like, yeah, it's totally alive. And it's like eating your sclera and stuff. But I'm, it's hard for me to understand that question and say whether or not I'm surprised because again, well, this yeah, is no, you already you already, you already read this. I mean, this is stuff that okay. you've already read. I'm guessing that Rodrigo didn't read these when they originally came out. Ashley didn't read them when they originally came out. The only thing that I read when it originally came out were those were the first two issues in this 
volume. And that's only because during the summer I was at a cousin's house and she had both of those. And uh, I just read them for the week and a half that we were we were at the house. So the first two issues of this I'm very, very familiar with. But when it comes to what is the what is the symbiote? What you know, what does it come from? What does it do? You know, the whole Eddie Brock thing, uh, how you defeat it, how you get it to come off, all those things. Any of that stuff is a, a surprise or has the Venom origin pretty much seeped into cultural consciousness as far as comic book nerdery goes. Well, I, I mean, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, that's my whole thought was, I think so. Yeah, for me, um, I, when, when I was, uh, at, at, I don't know, a tween or a teen, I was watching the 90s Spider-Man cartoon mm-hmm. and that series did a really good job with the alien symbiote. Uh, costume thing they basically took all of this stuff starting from the secret war stuff and made the issues that spider-man was having a lot more marked and then finally uh venom came out and there was like the the sonic stuff the fire stuff everything was introduced uh the fact that it doesn't like trigger a spider sense things that i think um were also added later, like for example, Venom's tongue, right. which isn't even a thing in this. Um, and when you say like, did um, did Spider-Man three lift th- everything whole cloth out of this? It's like I think Spider-Man three lifted it from the Spider-Man cartoon because Probably. it told it in a lot more succinct way. Because when when they were making that, they were like, let's tell the story of how Venom comes to be Spider-Man's enemy, as opposed to like, let's tell a story about uh, one of Spider-Man's greatest enemies, the Red Ghost and his super apes. <laughs> and also, there's kind of this costume stuff going on in the background. And also, let's wait 10 years to, like, finalize it. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, just, you know, going in with that purpose makes that story a lot easier to follow. And then you can throw in other stuff that's going on in the background or, you know, stuff slips out of the background or out of the foreground into the background. And that's okay as long as there's that purpose. These stories didn't didn't have that. If you go in looking for the birth of Venom, you're going to get a lot of like Spider-Man fighting like a Puma Mm -hmm. guy and like, uh, oh, yeah, the black cat, the black cat being like, hey, Spider-Man, I can't tell you something. And then. Four issues later, hey, Spider-Man, I still can't tell you something. Yeah, I mean, and that's what I thought, think is really weir- uh, interesting about this, not weird, is that um, anybody who wants to pick this up and read it because the movie is out or because they have some uh, interest in Venom is that there's going to be nothing as far as the character Venom that is going to be a surprise to you or new to you. Uh, so for that reason, I think this is relatively dry from from that standpoint. I don't know I th- if it's going to be terribly recognizable, though, to someone who's just mm. walked out of having not yeah. seen the Venom movie. Yeah, not seen the Venom movie, but I mean, I'm if you've seen make, Amazing I'm Spider-Man make 3. I'm going to leap here, guys, and I'm going to say that it's a heavy action movie. Um, and that's not this is not necessarily a, maybe the bombastic story that I think people might be mm-hmm. looking for coming out of uh, whatever that movie's going to well, be. 
and and probably the biggest thing is the characterization of Eddie Brock just yeah. from the trailer that I've seen is going to be very different. Totally. Right. right. Oh yeah. Brock yeah, yeah. here is just a class A bad um, person. Yeah. So yes. he's a schmuck. Uh, yeah, but so, that being said, I think there are some really interesting things that are going on in this collection. This is where we find out that uh, you know Mary Jane reveals, "I knew you were Spider Man all along." Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a big thing for that to happen all the way in the uh, in the late 80s, Matthew. That is huge. And it was really underplayed, but it is huge because the 1980s, and I, I don't know if uh, people have done a lot of um, really looking into this, but I can tell you that the 1980s are the point where the actual concept of a secret identity stopped really mattering to most people. It stopped being a thing. I mean, Iron Man just came out and said, I'm Iron Man in the late 80s. Later, they revoked that, and they retconned the universe, and then he came out and said, I'm Iron Man again, and then they changed the whole universe. But this is the point where the idea that a superhero had to protect his identity or her identity started really going away. And the fact that Mary Jane is like, oh, I totally knew you were Spider-Man when we were 18. That's a big deal. I mean, that's really one of the major turning points to the much lamented sold to the devil spider wedding coming up a couple mm. years after this. Because that's really this is the point where they're really positioning Mary Jane as Peter's one true love. Whereas mm -hmm. for like 10, 15 years before this, it's been all about the memory of Gwen Stacy. And then whatever so, is going on with him and, and uh, Black Cat, so. Uh, Black Cat, I think on his end, was always kind of a, I don't know what I'm doing, but she's totally into me. And she was totally into Spider-Man, but could not give a rat's patootie for Peter Parker. So I, it was really kind of Peter having fun. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I will say this. I'm a little disturbed at how often Mary Jane ends up in some like super expensive lingerie. Well, and that is that, that's the whole when we jump over into is that second arc. With, or is it really cheap? Because there's a <laughs> it's thin either line. really expensive or like nine dollar knockoff stuff. Well, totally. it is, it from, is definitely from Hollywood cheap. Boulevard. It is definitely um, cheap. Let's say that. Uh, but yeah, I'll that's say, that whole this, 80s aesthetic just, that's going on in there. Yeah, um, I thought that was maybe the most wild thing was. Um, especially the McFarlane stuff, because the narrative that we have constructed around the creation of Image Comics is, you know, the greatest artists of their time. Um, mm -hmm. And it's wild to go and and look at this art now. And it's not that it makes that statement wrong, but it just to me, I've really come to realize, like, how much our sensibilities have changed since yeah. the story was created. Like, yeah, I can't remember who made really it was, I think that um, Venom is about five times as wide as he is tall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, that's insane to look at and hysterical. But I, I don't think at the time it would have stood out the way it stands out now. Well, uh, I think it did, though. That's that's the thing. It, is Marvel had a house style. And this is actually a beautiful uh, collection to look at that because the mm -hmm. first half of it is absolutely, this is what Marvel Comics look like. Yeah. And right. the second half is... These are artists oh, that yeah. are struggling against that model. Oh, yeah. They're I mean, just yeah. pushing and pushing and pushing against it until finally they're like, you know what? 
I'm just going to make my own set of comics. Yeah. Everybody's skin is going to be gold and they're going to have yeah. giant muscles. Well, and that's why yeah. I said in this second section, which I'm calling the McFarlane section, because I'm pretty sure he was the only artist in that second or that third section of the book, according to Rodrigo. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing that is really amazing, and this is kind of what made people really excited about Spider-Man at the time, was look at McFarlane's web work. Look at the fact that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Spider-Man yeah. is bending into these positions that yep, yep. Kirby and Ditko and all these other guys never put these characters in. And, and, and that is something that's definitely carried over into what modern Spider-Man is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah the, even, the even playing the game, you like, can see those moves going on. Yeah I, don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know that McFarlane was the first person, but the size of Spider-Man's eyes. I love is like it. Enormous. And bigger, that's something that's bigger still spider around. eyes. It's yep. You know, you look at this style and it looks kind of wacky, but at the time it was just so dynamic compared to everything else. And it's again, it's so suited to Spider-Man, right? When Spider-Man was first created, they were like, here's a guy that's never going to stand you know, straight up with his hands on his hips like Superman does. Mm-hmm. He's always right. going to be crawling up a wall or perching on something. And this is McFarlane being like, well, it's like if somebody was swinging through the city, they would have to kick out their legs in ludicrous ways in order to maintain that yeah. momentum yeah, and just these, or whatever. And just these cable thick spider webbings that are right. being yeah. shot out is just really Spider crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That crazy, crazy webbing. That was a huge, huge change. And what, I think what we see here, because this actually takes place, this collection is several years mm-hmm. worth of cult, cultivated stories. That first Secret War story was 84, and I want to say that the last of these McFarlane issues is 87, 88. You're looking at the point where Marvel's house style actually changes. This is the point where the things that McFarlane and Mark Bagley and to a lesser degree Eric Larson, but you know what the guys like even, God help us, Liefeld, we're doing sure. making changes to that staid 80s style to the point where when the image revolution comes around in 93, it felt like these guys, hey, this is this is Marvel knockoffs. This is exactly mm-hmm. because it has become Marvel's house style. And before these McFarlane stories, you got Spider-Man doing, you know, weird stuff, but it was always a, a scrawny Ditko Spider-Man doing weird crouchy things. And now everybody draws weird, stretchy, had legs behind the ears, probably well, a bad race. But also, you know, compare the first half of the book, and I forget who the artist was, Fr- uh, Frank? Frank? Rod Friends. Friends, that's his name. Um, you, compare his, you compare his very thin Spider-Man to McFarlane's Peter Parker, where suddenly Peter Parker is like, hello, I'm the buffest dude that you will ever see in your life, and I can barely what? fit through this door because my chest is so wide. And it's just like, whoa, that is a huge difference. And not only is it a huge stylistic difference just between the artists, but you can really clearly see a delineation in time period. If we're talking like 84 and then 87, there's a huge cultural change in in art yeah. and style just in the United States uh, that just kind of flip flops uh, suddenly in that in that mid 19 because you look at like 1984 I think that's yep. when it happened. That's when we start seeing the swatch. And I forget what the, it's not the Bauhaus style, but there was a specific style that was created by three artists in Germany or Berlin or Germany or Belgium. Sorry. And it, and it basically gave us that swatch watch eighties, uh, uh, you know, after school, uh, it's the Memphis style. Yes. Yes. Something. That's it. Yes. That's it. 
And it is it's totally crazy. It's totally, totally weird. And so you start to see that the shoulder pads, the the uh, the cheap slash sexy lingerie, the big boofoo hair all of a sudden just explodes right there at the time when McFarlane starts doing this stuff with with Spider-Man that we see in the second part of the book. Yeah, the heavy silhouettes that you run into. But Friends also, and it's important to look at these, Friends is doing a pure Ditko riff here. Mm-hmm. Right after he leaves Spider-Man, he goes over to Thor, and on Thor, he does just solid Kirby knockoffs from page to page to page. So Friends is intentionally trying to go old school with the Spider-Man, the scrawny Spider-Man design, but somehow it actually ends up feeling not really retro, but sort of a 20 seconds into the future kind of thing, because yeah. this is, this That's is the part where I'm retro. like, yeah, well, okay. Yeah, no, retro. Uh, Rodrigo, retro future. no, Rodrigo picked the, Rodrigo picked the design group. It is the Memphis group, which was, an, and I said, Germany, it's an actually an Italian group that came up with this stuff. And it's just basically postmodern uh, style and design that is making a comeback. So if you people are wondering why in Tennessee, if they were Italian, yeah, well, there you go. It's it's a question for the ages, Matthew, or for for, uh, for a Wikipedia to uh, give yeah. you at least a place to start. For the ages of six to ten. So, uh, question then: Beyond the whole Mary Jane reveal, beyond um, uh, Rodrigo's uh, f- favorite section with the red ghost and the the ape fighting, um, <laughs> and and the, I forgot about Magnet Monkey and the the really weird Puma story. Um, I like Puma. Did you guys did you guys enjoy this reading experience? Because I've got to say, I was just kind of like, I, OK, I, I was just kind of like, I can see why this is kind of some stuff people might want to read, but I would probably pass on it. Uh, if you definitely are into the comic book history stuff, there's some some interesting bits and some moments to pick up from this. Uh, but I think they're collected better elsewhere. What, what about you, Rodrigo? Well, so uh, there's a lot of big gaps in my uh, superhero knowledge and, and, and the books that I was reading. But this, these eras of Spider-Man are not one of them. I was yeah. way into Spider-Man when I got into comics. Um, so I read all of this stuff. And for me, reading through this, it was a little weird because as I was going in, I already knew I'm like, this isn't about Venom. Like mm-hmm. we're starting way too early. I know that Venom doesn't show up until way, way later. So I'm like, I'm just going through and I'm like, oh, I love the red ghost and his ridiculous monkeys. <laughs> like I, I, I really like the rose. I think the rose is like uh, kind of an underrated, like middle boss. You know, mm-hmm. it's like for some reason they're always adapting guys like Hammerhead, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Daredevil and in Spider-Man books. And I'm like, why don't we see more of the Rose? It's actually kind of got like this, like creepy, like European, mm-hmm. like uh thief vibe to a mob boss. So I, it was very enjoyable for me because I'm like, I remember these stories. I remember these characters. Um, if there was ever a moment where I'm like, this is dragging, I could skim it. And I already knew what was happening. Cause sometimes it gets a little wordy. Sometimes it gets a little slow. Um, and I honestly enjoyed the old stuff much more than the McFarlane stuff, yeah, which I too. wasn't expecting because back in the 90s, when I was reading this stuff, I was all over it. But now I'm like, actually, that that old stuff, although sometimes the stories seem very inconsequential because they have that they have to have that finality. Like, 
you know, it, it has to be done in like a relatively short arc. Um, there's still something to the story, something to the things that they set up that, you know, other writers picked up on later. Yeah. Matthew, what about you? I think the important thing to remember about this is if you were to take 300 pages of any comic character over the course of five to seven years and, you know, kind of strain out salient points to try and make a particular collection or trying to make a a particular narrative thrust, you're going to get a really choppy story. And this, this is remarkably successful in keeping, you know, a tone. I mean, the art goes kind of nuts, but it feels like it's of a piece from top to bottom. It doesn't necessarily feel like a completely different Spider-Man from 1984 than it, you know, by the end when we get to like 1989. And that's difficult especially when you're looking at as many creators as you have, I want to say there's five oh, different yeah, there's writers credited in yeah, there. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. But it's interesting to see, even in 1980, how strong that Spider-Man character and or, you know, the editorial iron fist of Jim Salakrup was in keeping that, that all together and keeping it solid and making sure that Mary Jane is always wearing cheap slash trashy expensive lingerie. <laughs> I don't know. Ashley, uh, some final thoughts from you on this collection. Um, I was not enthused when I heard that we were going to be reading Venom um, because much as I am not nor have never been a 14-year-old boy. In spite of that, um, I think this collection was very entertaining. I definitely want to echo Rodrigo's sentiment that the Spider-Man stuff is way more interesting, even though you maybe expect the Farland stuff to be more bombastic and more exciting. And it definitely was for the time. And, and, you know, we spoke a lot about why that was and da, 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 da. Um, it's, it's a better collection than I thought I was getting into. And I enjoyed most of it. However, if you went to see Venom and you're looking for something to read, <laughs> I don't know yeah, if this yeah. is the place to start based on a modern reader's expectation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this would be for <sighs> purely for people who want to have a historical if you're, perspective. Yeah, if you're a real nerd, you could do a lot worse than than this collection. Yeah, and I'm not saying that this is bad. It's just it's I, you know I've seen some better both Spider-Man and some better um, um, Venom stuff that's out mm-hmm. there. So. Uh, read it at your own risk maybe uh or pick it up uh at your local library because i'm sure it's all over the place there is a link if you want to pick this up uh that will take you to amazon.com using our affiliate link and a little bit comes back our way this is a relatively inexpensive book for as many pages and stuff that you're getting it's like less than 25 bucks uh so um maybe worth checking out uh, right there Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Rodrigo, for being part of the Major Spoilers experience this week. And I think that will wrap it up for this issue. Thank you, dear listeners, for being part of the Major Spoilers experience. We always enjoy having you here. As always, we want to hear your feedback. So head to the comment section at Majorspoilers.com to share your thoughts and reactions to Venom and this episode. Or even better, send us an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. And don't forget. You can support this show and everything we do by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash majorspoilers. We will be back next week to talk more comic book fun because we know that you love comics and we do too. And we will talk with you soon. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the Man of Steel. I'm gonna rewrite the 
This podcast is copyright 2018 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.